We are back in with the latest edition of the TopHeavyweights.com podcast. I am the somewhat capable host, TJ Reeves. He is Sean from TopHeavyweights.com. I love this man's insight. Man, do we have a lot in the historical perspective to go over. We even have an intriguing uh, British heavyweight contender that's in action coming this weekend in England. All of that to talk to. Uh, Sean, good to be back with you. Uh, and by the way, if you like Mike Tyson historical perspective and historical fights, this is a great time period with a lot of them having been in late June throughout his career. But anyway, good to have you and a lot to go over here on the latest edition of the podcast. Pleasure, TJ. Good to see you here. And I'm sure Joe Joyce will appreciate the fact that he has been declared a contender. A contender. He's a contender. Very much somebody that's in the picture. He is in action against a veteran Christian Hammer. How much do we care about this? We will find out later in the podcast what Sean has to say about that and why. Uh, Again, historical perspective we cover. We also cover news. There's not a ton of news right now, but you want to be with us as part of the Big Fight Weekend podcast feed. Wherever you get podcasts, just look for the Big Fight Weekend podcast feed. We're out right now every couple of weeks. When there's an important enough fight, we might be out a couple of weeks in a row middle of the week, et cetera, when there's enough news, a big enough fight, et cetera, uh, when Sean tolerates me enough more than once every couple of weeks, then we're back with another topheavyweights.com, uh, the podcast. Uh, a reminder, again, follow, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, find that Big Fight Weekend podcast feed, follow and uh, subscribe, and you will get it automatically whenever we have a new one. You don't have to wait for a social media link or us to prompt you in any other way. You'll just get it automatically if you are subscribed up. So since last you and I talked, hallelujah. That's the last time I'm going to try to sing on this episode. It's been announced. Anthony Joshua and Alexander Usyk announced August 20th. First press conference held in Saudi Arabia. Sean to you. Okay. We have a date. We have a site. And what do we think of them meeting with the media as muted as all of that was figuratively in kind of a, a sterile setting in Saudi Arabia and they were sitting yeah. on the stage and they were all nice and not exactly, you know, Mike Tyson trying to punch Lennox Lewis at a press no. conference back in the day. There was none of that. What did you think? Well, it felt like a press conference almost from a different planet. Uh, it was just, it was sleek. It was slick. It was obviously designed to ingratiate itself to the agenda of the um, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to promote the sport of boxing and br- bring more people into it. And some would say other things, but it's uh, it's obviously they're committed to this to make it an A1 class one event. And the fighters were there. Everyone participated. I thought the, um, the fact that they had Saudi Arabian interviewers get involved, which was kind of neat. It gave it a real a real flavor. And I thought Usyk looked pretty big. It'll be interesting to see what his weight is on fight night because it looks to me like he's bulked up a bit. Um, maybe that was just for show. Maybe he's just pumped himself up for the press conference to give a bit of intimidation or something like that because I'm sure he could go up five or eight and bring it back down. Um, I thought Anthony Joshua, the stare down was something else. I mean, uh, there was no doubt Osh, uh, Usyk decided to drop the Mr. Nice Guy routine and uh, do the uh, the cold stare, if you will. <laughs> And, uh, and I thought Joshua was a little bit taken by it, and so was Eddie Hearn. And, of course, the gentleman from the uh, Saudi Arabian uh, group was also there. And they all seemed to be a little stunned at Usyk's lack of movement. And, of course, Joshua followed suit. And then at one point, Joshua broke away, looked forward, and Usyk kept looking at him. Interesting stuff. Yeah. So that we get a little, bit, a little bit of that in the prelims. Again, no fireworks, per se, pushing, shoving. 
uh, name calling. And we didn't really expect that. Uh, what do you make? And we've got plenty of time to get into this when it gets closer to fight time. But Robert Garcia, the trainer, was there, did have some things to say. I don't know that you and I talked about this on the podcast. If you did with me, I honestly, forgive me, don't remember if we did talk about this. What do you make of that decision? And what did you think, if anything, of him sitting there and giving a couple of reasons and Joshua giving a couple of reasons on why Joshua chose him and how much of a difference do you think over the next few weeks that will make? Uh, you know, all due respect to Robert Garcia and to the, to the former champion, but I thought that they were sort of delivering the standard lines that new trainers tend to give when they take on a fighter who's seen better days in terms of their last defeat. I think Robert Garcia's top notch. I think really the question is, is Anthony Joshua ready to take it to another level? Cause I think for what he's going to face. And in, I, I thought Josh uh, Usyk did a good job in the first fight, but I thought he was lucky not to get hit hard more times. In this fight, uh, you get the sense that Usyk's going to bring it and Joshua has to have more. And can Garcia get more out of him? Well, they're saying all the right things and jo Joshua's saying all the right things. But uh, come fight night, I have a feeling that Joshua is going to be facing an Usyk that is uh, a lot more dangerous than the one he faced the first time. So let me give you a reference point. You already know this. Uh, Tyson Fury obviously switched trainer managers to Sugar Hill Stewart, the nephew of Emmanuel Stewart, uh, before his second Deontay Wilder fight and before obviously again rematching him and fighting him a third time. But by their own admissions, first of all, Stewart had worked previously with Fury years ago when Emmanuel Stewart was working with Tyson Fury. Sugar Hill Stewart had been in the training sessions, had gone over a lot of the same stuff. So there was familiarity there. Yeah. Uh, all right, so there's a reference point on somebody making the change, and it worked out for Tyson Fury. What do you make uh, of of that with the qualifier that it's not apples to apples? Garcia is brand new for Anthony right. Joshua. Right, and and I don't think Garcia is known as a trainer who brings the, the – I mean, it's not that he can't do it or he doesn't do it, but the Kronk mentality that was brought to the Tyson Fury camp was an attack danger mentality. Um, I'm not sure that – that's what Garcia brings to Anthony Joshua, but I'm sure he's capable of developing it if it's there. He, uh, well, I mean, I think for Tyson Fury, it was the right move. He played it right. He backed up Deontay Wilder. He had the plan. Now, does Anthony Joshua go into the relationship with Danny Garcia with the idea of saying, this is my attack trainer? I, I don't think he's quite said that. So I don't know exactly. He, he says this time he's going to have a plan. But... You know, it's how it's, much different is that plan is yeah. what we don't know until right, we yeah. see August 20th on what what how much can you make a fight over? I mean, let me give one more reference point that when Deontay Wilder got rid of Mark Breland, who I have great affinity for because I grew up watching the sport, grew up watching Breland in the 84 Olympics as an Olympic champion, eventually a welterweight champion, had so much respect for him uh, as a fighter, got a chance to interview him. Uh, Sean uh, a couple of times in and around Deontay Wilder's fights and it was a kick and a thrill to get to talk to him and talk strategy with Wilder. All right, so Wilder almost scapegoated Breland, I think that's the right word, after his second loss. He brought in a guy that's not even really a known boxing trainer in Malik Scott, a former fighter, a former fighter that Wilder knocked out in the first round. Don't laugh, Sean. Wilder knocks a guy out in the first round. What is that guy going to really teach him in the gym or whatever? Malik Scott kept saying all the right things about we're working on footwork, we're working on this. To most, your opinion, you didn't see a different Deontay Wilder. It wasn't true. 
So I just bring that up as a reference point. There was another trainer change, but for the reasons I gave, it didn't make a difference for Deontay Wilder, right? I agree with you, uh, but I think Deontay Wilder wanted one thing from his trainer, and that's that he got to go out on his shield. And I think that Mark Breland wasn't willing to let that happen, whereas I think however you want to judge it, that's a different thing. But Malik Scott, with all of it, was willing to, and he showed it, Mm. was willing to let Wilder go out on his shield, which is what Wilder wanted to do. Right. So, um, and I guess he maybe there was the feeling that if Wilder was not willing to go out on his shield or if the whole team wasn't willing to go out on their shield, that he wouldn't have the chance to win. Because uh, let's face it, Wilder did have that puncher's chance right until the last few seconds. He did. Good yeah. point on that. So plenty more time to go over Usyk and Joshua. I still, I don't, you don't have to react to this. You don't have to get into all this. I still have concern that we're almost seven or eight weeks away. And with what's going on in Usyk's home country, Ukraine, yep. we're still a long distance away with the Russian attacks that continue for that fight. I hold out hope that we can get there. I was more hopeful if this fight had been in July that we would be able to get there and have the bout. Clearly, all involved want it to happen. There's heavy motivation for all involved, financial and otherwise, to want it to happen. Let's hope that it will. Let's hope so. I mean, it's hard to, to know, but let's keep in mind that, you know, there are fighters in many divisions, even the heavyweights, uh, where they come from certain African countries. They're based in the mm-hmm. West. Those African countries are in a state of civil war or all kinds of horrible things are happening, but the fighters still fight internationally. Now, obviously, this fight is happening outside of any area of conflict. And I think Usyk has made the decision that he his country is to be represented and he's going to represent his country. And uh, the two sportsmen are going to get together. If you're cheering for Anthony Joshua, you're not against Usyk. And if you're cheering for Usyk, you're not against Joshua. I just think it's um, it's outside. It's it's the sporting world will go on, the uh, the 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 professional sports will go on around the world, and uh, I think Usyk and Joshua are part of the professional sports sphere, and and they're going to operate independent of the uh, unfolding events in uh, Eastern Europe. And just to that point, one more, and then we're going to move on. Yeah. The Wimbledon tennis tournament. The, the obvious, uh, honestly, probably the most famous worldwide tennis event has now begun at the All England Club, and they are a private club. This is their private event. It's not an open championship like the United States Tennis Open or the French Open or the Australian Open are open events to qualify for. This is their own private event, and they made it clear no Russian athletes, men or women, are participating yeah while this conflict is going on. So it's an interesting take by them. By, for example, and you know this, Sean, before we move on, in the National Hockey League, we've just concluded the end of the National Hockey League season where the commissioner, Gary Bettman, and the league said for all the different Russian players and all the different teams, they're eligible to still play and compete all the way through the playoffs. And a lot of them were involved in the playoffs, including for my Tampa Bay Lightning, who suffered a bitter loss going for the three-peat to the Colorado Avalanche. There were players on both the Lightning and the Avalanche of Russian descent. Yeah. Well, so I there's know. the National Hockey League saying, hey, it's okay, it's fine. So they're well, different, different strokes. Yeah. And I think Usyk, is, uh, his background isn't being questioned. And also, I think boxing, which makes it different from a lot of these other sports, is that there is no ruler of the boxing world. <laughs> there is nobody. Nobody can come in from on high and tell someone. There, there actually can't. is a yeah. ruler, but it's not a person. What is the ruler? The golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Whoever has the green. The yeah. ruler in boxing is follow the money, right, brother? Yep. We know that. Right. We follow know that. It. So, like, whoever's got the gold is going to come out on top. <laughs> I guess that's the way it is. So we'll find out how it all plays out. But I do believe that Usyk and Joshua, 
with all the delays that have happened over the last couple of years, with all the things that have happened, I, I think as all these problems manifest, I do think we are all as a people going to get to a point where life is going to have to continue in spite of sure. the continual difficulties that are going to happen. Because I don't, I don't think anyone expects the world to go back to whatever calm, uh, whatever. If, if, there's always been problems, but I mean, right. I don't, I don't see us really going back to happy land, if you will. I think that we're going to have to learn to deal with a, a difficult set of circumstances domestically, internationally, and it's going to affect the sports we love. It's going to affect athletes of all types. It's going to affect teams. Um, but uh, all we can do is hope that the contest between Usyk and Joshua is a good, and I know it's going to be a good contest. I don't think anyone expects that to be anything other than scintillating. Uh it can't be boring. I mean, uh, this Joshua, is not an oversell six weeks out. Joshua's career is on the line. It is if, on the if, line. I mean, if he loses to Usyk, then I, I think you have a realistic possibility he doesn't fight anymore because what's the point? I mean, he's not going to get a shot at Tyson Fury anytime soon. Who cares about a Tyson Fury fight? That now I'm going on and on on the tangent no, no, on the no, stuff no, no. I'll say I think, later. I think, no, well, but who I think cares about a Tyson right, yeah. Fury fight with Anthony Joshua if he's lost three times in well, the last well, three or four fights? But then again, I think I, I don't disagree with that from a from a certain standpoint. But just to play the counterpoint here, yeah, I do think that as fighters become more famous, Anthony Joshua is going to be more famous after the Usyk fight, the next one that he was a year ago. He is getting more famous. Tyson Fury is getting more famous. Deontay Wilder become became famous. He's famous. So a lot. If you look at some of the uh, the sideshow fights that are happening off the outside the boundaries of rankings with guys that have no wins that make any any have no relevance or they've got lots of defeats when Mike Tyson fought the exhibition and stuff like that those people aren't anywhere near the apex of the sport we've got stars and I do believe that yes if Anthony Joshua lost to Usyk in a solid competitive fight and he did well and he lost it's a defeat it's his third defeat I I, I know it's not easy to go from the top to the almost the top but Deontay Wilder, Anthony Joshua, you know, uh, uh, Deontay Wilder, Andy Ruiz. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Ruiz in a bit, but he's got a fight coming up. And there's a lot of interesting fights. But your point is, and I think I understand it, if a heavyweight has got to a point where they've made so much money and the road forward is less money with less chance of success, why go on? And yep. I think... Uh, I guess that's the eternal question we all face. Uh, and that's that, you know, and that's the question coming up for Anthony Joshua, yeah. and we got plenty of time to debate that yeah. uh, for sure. Okay, here's something that I love as this part of the podcast. Sean clues us in on the historical perspective on what's been going on in the recent days and weeks around the time that we're doing the podcast throughout heavyweight boxing history. Let's hear more right now. This time in heavyweight history. July 4th, 1910, the fight of the century. Jack Johnson successfully defends his heavyweight championship against former champion Jim Jeffries, who hadn't fought in over five years. In Reno, Nevada, USA, Johnson dominated the bout and stopped Jeffries in the 15th round. 
June 27, 1988, once and for all, from the Convention Hall in Atlantic City, New Jersey, USA, undefeated, undisputed heavyweight champion Mike Tyson faces off and knocks out in the first round undefeated lineal heavyweight champion Michael Spinks to solidify his claim to the crown. The fight held in Atlantic City only lasted 98 seconds and Spinks never fought again. June 28, 1997, Hollyfield Tyson II from the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Nevada. One of boxing's most infamous fights as WBA heavyweight champion Evander Hollyfield receives a third round disqualification victory over former champion Mike Tyson who incredibly bit the champion twice, even removing a portion of one of his ears. All right, so first of all, before we get to the two Tyson phenomenal anniversaries around the Michael Spinks one-round destruction and then bite night two, can that seriously have been 25 years ago? It was 25 years ago. Before we get to those, it was dubbed the fight of the century. On Monday, it's Independence Day as we release this podcast. Monday is July 4th. July 4th, 1910, hello, is the controversial uh, Jack Johnson, uh, Jim Jeffries uh, battle in Reno, Nevada, and uh, and Jack Johnson ends up winning on July 4th. They used to have fights around July 4th outside in the heat, yep. and it was all it was always seemingly controversial around Jack Johnson as the as the heavyweight champion around the turn of the century, a a black man in, in an America that did not. Uh, welcome people of other races and other descents, as certainly uh, back a hundred years ago they did not. But Jack Johnson was dominant in his time. Sean, no, there's a, that's a, a, no dispute about that. He's he was dominant. He was charismatic. He made everyone laugh, including white people. Everyone had a good time. <laughs> I mean, he was believe me, he was big time entertainment, and everyone knew it. They loved him in Europe. They loved him in France. Uh, there's a great story behind that, the fight of the century when uh, comebacking retired. Uh, well, undefeated heavyweight champion Jim Jeffries, who had retired five years before, was convinced to come back, lose 100 pounds, which he actually did, incredibly, and challenge Jack Johnson after five years out of the ring. It went 15 rounds. Uh, Jeffries was in no condition for Johnson, and Johnson was a dominant, great heavyweight champion. It's interesting to note the fight was originally supposed to be in San Francisco, but the Women's League of California petitioned the government to get the fight out of the state. <laughs> they, 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 the you, have yeah. you have taught me something yeah. on TopHeavyweights.com, the podcast, that, wait a minute, in the time frame of 1910, right. that women were not allowed to vote yet, by the way, in the United States, yet yeah. they got the heavyweight championship of the world fight moved out of San Francisco. They, I love it, this. Listen, we had no undisputed heavyweight champion for 10 years because two brothers told their mom they wouldn't fight. That's the way it works. You know, we all know that, okay, sure, cut uh, voting and that's all great, but... I mean, the Women's League of California petitioned the, gover <laughs> the, petitioned the governor and they said, this is not the fight of the century. This is the 20th century. Get this barbarism out of our state, right? Wow. So, so that's the women made their move and then the guys made their move and decided to move it to the Nevada desert to Reno and they built their own stadium there so they could put it on outside the clutches of the Women's League of California. <laughs> and... Uh, and it should be noted, I mean, I know there's a lot of negativity around it, but, you know, of course, and they also put it there because it was far away from the areas in the United States where the uh, where the black people were. In other words, to get out to Reno would be very hard for them because it's very right. far. And but but to be fair to sporting fans, to heavyweight boxing fans, boxing fans, the place was packed. It was a huge event. The whole town was full of people. Guns were being checked at the saloons. You name it. <laughs> 
but but and 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 Jack Johnson did his win. He gave it the big smile. He made fun of everybody. He mugged everybody. He left un, unattacked, unassailed. He got right. paid. And all the guys in the stadium just left disappointed and got back on their trains and went home. So, and they, a lot of them, and, and I've got a poster back behind me, which isn't here right now, but it's a picture of all these guys in the West. Uh, they're standing outside a saloon. There must be about 60 of them with Jack Johnson. They're all just white guys. They love them. You know, they're all, they're all there with their guns and their things. And, <laughs> you know, he was, they, he was from Texas and they were Texans, you know? And, uh, and, and so Jack Johnson did, of course, the, the racial tensions of the time are undis- undisputed, but he had a huge fan base. And it should be noted that boxing, heavyweight boxing, was the first to break the color barrier in terms of major sports long before baseball and, True. and the other ones. And that's because boxing is organic. As you were saying before, you know, who's going to tell, tell Wimbledon or who's going to tell the NHL or who's going to tell them and the pressure and the pressure. But boxing has this organic freedom to find the solution. And if a man is the best heavyweight in the world and he happens to not be of European descent back in 1909, well, he's going to, he, the boxing fans, the true boxing fans are like, if he's the best, he's the guy. And that's it. And Jack Johnson was the guy for a long time and, until un, until the controversial loss to Jess Willard, which an anniversary is coming on that, I think, later in the summer, too. Uh, but, that I mean, he was the guy. He was Phenomenal. the guy in that day. All right, so the guy that became the guy really in the late 1980s, the menacing Mike Tyson, the next, yeah. the next guy, post-Joe Lewis, post-Rocky Marciano, Muhammad Ali, Larry Holmes, yeah. the next great one. Uh, targeted for stardom was Mike Tyson. The anniversary with Michael Spinks. Say a little more about that. It was called Once and for All in Atlantic City. Um, yeah. I've even I've relived this right before uh, we've taped this podcast on TopHeavyweights.com one more time just to go back and relive all of that. Um, and a couple of things strike you. First of all, there was almost a 20-minute delay where the promoter for Michael Spinks, Butch Lewis, was by everybody's uh, acknowledgement being an, a maniac troublemaker behind the scenes and trying to have Mike Tyson's hands rewrapped and not let him put the, the wraps in the gloves and not let the fight go on because he was upset that the hands weren't wrapped properly, blah, blah, blah. And all it did, and Tyson admitted this immediately after the fight in the ring, all it did was fire up Tyson even more to go KO his guy, Sean. Pick it up yeah. from there on the 91-second destruction of Michael Spinks. It was it was a weird buildup. I've even watched YouTube videos with hours of uh, pre Spinks Tyson uh, Tyson Spinks before the big lead up show, and I'm watching it, and it's funny because I don't think anyone thought that Spinks had a realistic chance. He was undefeated. He was the one who took the uh, the IBF heavyweight championship and the lineal championship from Larry Holmes. He had never lost. He won the rematch. He had uh, defeated Stefan Tagstad, and he knocked out uh, a troubled Sherry Cooney, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in fifth round. And, and he did all those things convincingly, and he was 208 pounds, and he was Michael Spinks, but... I don't think anyone really thought he had a chance, including him. There were a couple. I watched the one yeah. recap. There was there's a writer and he's still around. I love Wally Matthews. He's been a boxing writer and been around for 40 years around the heavyweight division in New York, a New York writer, a sports writer, but primarily a boxing guy. And Wally Matthews very famously put it out there that he believed Sp- Spinks would win because Tyson was so distracted behind the scenes with trying to break away from his management team with Bill Caton, his manager. Uh, Don King involved. Tyson was also in the throes of a a roller coaster short marriage to Robin Givens, the actress 
who would eventually file for divorce within within like six months to a year of him beating Spinks. So he had all this turmoil going on in his personal life. And Wally Matthews knew about that, and he thought that would be advantage Michael Spinks. Matthews was the first one to admit after the fight, boy, was I wrong. Well, that didn't even matter as they got in the ring. Yeah, I just think it, you could equate it with um, Sonny Liston and Floyd Patterson. I mean, uh, Sonny Liston could have had all the troubles in the world coming into the ring. Floyd Patterson's not beating him. uh, (laughs) There's just not happening. They tried it twice. Right. Not going to happen. He didn't get Uh, out of the first round either time, to your point, Floyd Patterson. that's it. Yeah, you're right. Uh, He didn't get out of the first round. There was no way he was going to get out of the first round. I think for Spinks, I was amazed when I watched the highlights of that fight. And when we say that fight, the 93 seconds, I'm always amazed that he's even there that long. Tyson is so dominant. Right. Just there's... uh, well, think, that, but that yeah. was a time frame, too, for just one more second, where if you could survive the initial onslaught and come up with some kind of whatever it is, movement, being able to grab him. I mean, for example, uh, Bone Crusher Smith, James Bone Crusher Smith was his name. What a great nickname in the 80s. Uh, he did nothing but grab, grapple, and hold from the first round on. He was bigger than Tyson, and all he did was grab, 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 and grab, and when in doubt, grab some more. To the point that I still remember they they began to mock his nickname and called him Bone Clutcher Smith after that fight because all he did was grab him. So you had a chance maybe to assert yourself but also have a strategy of box, move, do something in the first minute or two, survive the first minute or two, and you may have a chance to get the fight yeah. deeper. Some guys had yeah. did had done that before with Tyson. Michael Spinks on that night in Atlantic City didn't try any of that, obliterated. No, he would have needed a bit of a Hollyfield chin. He would have needed a bit of a Hollyfield punch just to keep Tyson honest and at bay the way Hollyfield did in the first fight um, between Hollyfield and Tyson. No, I just don't think he had the guns. I don't think he had the defense. I don't think he had the coordination. I don't think he had the size, the confidence. I think he was beat from the from the first bell, and he knew it. Everyone knew it. Butch Lewis knew it, and that might explain his erratic behavior. Um, but it was a cash out. Michael Spinks never fought again. Which Mike is Tyson. amazing. Which is, I mean, yes, he got a ton of money, yeah. but after that 91 seconds, that was well, it. Well, never funny. again. We, we talk about who's going to fight again and who will and won't fight again. I have to say, after that fight, and I remember at the time seeing the highlights on the news, I thought, he's never fighting again. And you, you were know, right. <laughs> and I really felt it just because of the complete, uh, what's the word for it, um, reluctance to even have any, he had no force of character. He had accepted he was beaten and there was nothing he could do about it. He has to be commemorated as the only, well, not the only, but the first light heavyweight champion to dethrone a heavyweight champion. And right. It's quite an accomplishment. And uh, Larry Holmes was on a bit, but I just think that that was Mike Tyson cleaning up the last vestiges of the 80s that were left over in terms of the time before he took over so now we move on to the bite night anniversary and full disclosure as we release this podcast this week on topheavyweights.com the podcast i i only recently reconnected that the fight was june the 28th 1997 so now 25 years ago june the 28th is also 
the uh, birthday of my daughters, Riley and Abby. Sean has already yes. uh, hit me privately with the uh, happy birthday to the twins. So the twins' birthday is forever intertwined with bite night, Tyson Holyfield, June 28th. Who knew uh, 11 years later that the twins would be born on the same night of that? Okay, so I have said yeah. plenty in many different places, including uh, Dan Rayfield and I talked about this briefly last week on the big fight weekend preview and the anniversary coming up. The floor is yours about bite night, the rematch match the disqualification and we're still talking about one of the most bizarre nights in boxing ever 25 years later yeah as a boxing fan i remember being there i was the guy who dragged all his friends out to the bar to watch it on the big screen get the chicken wings get the beer have a good time it was the best you know it was an incredible build-up because hollyfield had won so convincingly and tyson had sounded very magnanimous or uh, graceful, if you will, in his commentary after the first fight, where he had given Hollyfield a lot of compliments and uh, given him a lot of credit for the win, his counter-punching ability. So it looked to me like Tyson was coming in with a, I've got to do better, I've got to be better. That was his attitude. So people were excited. I think the second fight had way more anticipation than the first one, because the first one was sort of seen as a mismatch in that Hollyfield had no chance. But when the second one came around, it was truly... I, it, I think that was... It was hard. That was probably the first Tyson fight where people went into it with the idea that Tyson could would probably lose or could lose. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, it had always been Tyson's going to win. So as a fan watching it, the first two rounds, it was obvious that Hollyfield could do what he had done in the first, and he was going to do it perhaps even more effectively. And then Tyson uh, started to, uh, as you know, foul Hollyfield with incredibly bite. And then after a warning... He did it again, or I don't know if it was a warning, yep. but it, it was incredible. So to me, he was looking for a way out. He knew I was just he, going yeah. there. You read yeah. my mind. So yeah. much has been written and said yeah. that Tyson psychologically wanted a way out, and that was his way out, and it sounds like you subscribe to that. You believe that. Absolutely. It was a, it was a terrible night for boxing. We, we love Mike Tyson. He's, he's a great heavyweight champion, a legendary heavyweight champion, and and. He, and from what I can tell, he's a well-spoken... I hold him in high regard in all ways. But on that night, I think for heavyweight boxing fans, for boxing fans around the world, it was a really a disappointing night. It was, uh, it, was, it was tough because we all looked forward to that great showdown and it didn't matter who won we just wanted a good fight but so when you go back uh you can do this on youtube as well for you the fans that are listening here on topheavyweights.com the podcast go back and find the showtime rebroadcast on youtube and they have phenomenal referee mic audio microphone audio of mills lane the referee trying to enforce in real time what happened did he bite him he yeah. bit part of his ear off uh, what am i gonna do and initially, Mills Lane comes over to Mark Ratner, who's the head of the Nevada Commission. Because remember now, the referee is ultimately in charge. You've got the boxing organizations that are the overall authority, but the referee's in charge. He's dealing with either the commission chairman, which in this case is Mark Ratner, or the ringside physician to help him on whether the fight should go on. But he came over to Mark Ratner initially and said, I'm going to disqualify him. And the look, Sean, on Mark Ratner's face is like, oh, my God, you're going to disqualify him now after biting him once? And Ratner's like, okay. And then he and then through his head, he goes, okay, two points off. Two points off. That's what I'm going to do. He's like processing it, Mills Lane, in his own head. So he goes over and tells Tyson, two points off. You bit him, blah, blah, blah. So now they go again, and he bites him again. And that's when Mills Lane basically now had his grounds, had his reason to be able to say, 
that's it. He was thinking of disqualifying him after the first bite, Absolutely. Sean, on that. And and he and again he would have been within his rights, and I don't think anyone would argue differently. It's 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 I hate to say it, it's on Tyson. It was on Mike Tyson. Hollyfield came. He came to do things by the book. This is a sport. This is not uh, anything goes fighting. This is called boxing. It's the Marxist of Queensbury. And and when you when you go in the ring, even against an opponent, you do put yourself on the line, and you do trust that the opponent will stay within the rules. That's part of how you learn. You don't expect to be kicked. You don't expect to be, you know, whatever, bitten or need or whatever the case may be. I just think, as you said, we both had that moment. We acknowledged it. We hadn't discussed it before. And I, and we're all human. No one's perfect. But I think on that night, Mike Tyson just saw no way out. Well, I guess he saw a way out that didn't involve defeat if you will it was a disqualification but um, i think part of it yeah. and tyson's talked about this since then is that his mentality was if i believe i'm being fouled i'm gonna foul the guy back i, I don't know what else to do uh i i'm from the streets which he right. was yeah. this is how you you put the police the, the game you police it yourself you 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 get retribution he believed that holyfield was purposely using yeah. the crown of his head as a weapon yeah. but he snapped he snapped because he realized i can't intimidate this guy i can't knock this guy out and maybe that was his way out of the and, debate and, and, the debate but, rages on and to be fair i mean vander holyfield has been known for leading with his head he was he was using his head to some extent I don't know how blatant it was or whether it was just the way they were. What I together. continue to see your thought is that he would duck. He would yeah. duck down at Tyson coming at him and Tyson's coming at him wildly with a wild right. punch right at a ducked head. Right and there's under. a clash of heads yeah. and it happened yeah. more than once in the first fight. And it happened early in the, in the second fight and it cut Tyson's eye. Yep. And, yeah. and in our so. vernacular, he snapped and he got suspended by the way, for a year after that. And it, it continued the downward spiral that ended with Lennox Lewis splatting him in my hometown of Memphis, Tennessee, a couple of years later yep. uh, in 2000 uh, with the final punctuation knockout and the last time that Tyson ever challenged for the heavyweight championship. Well, and that so, really was, and that's it. That was the last time he challenged. And I think going back to Hollyfield Tyson too, that really 25 years ago, uh, that was really <laughs> that was really the end of Mike Tyson as a serious threat to the undisputed championship i think that's a that's a great way to put it and to close that out so great retrospective stuff you can read more at topheavyweights.com and we also uh ferret out a lot of the the way back stuff on bigfightweekend.com yep. i love yep. i love the insight and i love going back to look at this with the nostalgia especially in the heavyweight division all right two more things before we're gone you made reference earlier in the podcast that andy ruiz will be back with luis king kong ortiz this is not until september labor day weekend but it's been made official a quick thought from you that Ruiz, who pulled that shocking upset of Anthony Joshua in the first place, handed him his yep. first ever loss with a KO at Madison Square Garden in June of 2019. Ruiz is back. Only the second time Ruiz will have fought since Anthony Joshua beat him in the rematch. Uh, any quick thoughts here on this being made official? Yeah, it, it's it's great. It's great to see a fight with two guys who really have to it's stay or go. It's, uh, you know, show or don't. From what I can tell, from what we're seeing, Andy Ruiz is training hard. I think this is his do-or-die showdown in terms of the next stage of his career. Luis Ortiz knocked out Charles Martin earlier in the year, so you've got to admire his activity compared to most heavyweights. Twice a year is a lot. Uh, I think it's a, an evenly matched fight, but if Andy Ruiz comes in in 240s or 250s, 
um, I'd say he's got the edge. I don't know if you saw, there's a social media video out this week for what it's worth of him in training. He was doing like a plank, like a yoga right. plank, yeah. and he looked slimmer relative. Yeah. He yeah. looked now, what's he going to look like in September? We don't know. There's a lot of food intake opportunity between yeah. now and September. Who knows? And there's a, and there's a lot of camera angle opportunities. Yes, exactly. Shoot things. I, I don't know. I, I just think Andy Ruiz, this is a good opponent. I mean, People can say what they want about Luis Ortiz. He's always the butt of people's jokes, but he did beat Charles Martin, and uh, compared to what a lot of heavyweights are doing right now, that's something. And he's back against Andy Ruiz Jr. If he wins against Andy Ruiz Jr., we're going to have to start accepting that Luis Ortiz is at least to some extent in the picture going forward. All right, so plenty of time to talk about that one. One fight that we'll be interested in, the Queensbury Promotions uh, fight card in London for this weekend has Joe Joyce uh, fighting veteran Christian Hammer. Joyce uh, amateur, unbeaten, former similar, uh, former silver medalist as an amateur, unbeaten now as a pro, WBO number one contender, theoretically yep. in line to get the winner of Usyk and Joshua as the yep. WBO's number one at some point. What do you make of this this weekend as we release the podcast? Because that's the most significant yep. heavyweight bout in the near future. And, and it is, I mean, we don't, after what Lucas Brown did, we don't want to say anything uh, in terms of something being a tune-up, but this is... This is a stay-busy fight. Christian Hammer has gotten very negative as of late. He's He was a more aggressive fighter earlier on when he was uh, a contender. And uh, now he's sort of making money off his name. You never know what he's going to bring to the table. Joe Joyce should grind Christian Hammer down, who's a, who's a tough guy. But I see it ending. Uh, it'll either go to a decision or it'll end... Uh, between five and ten, eight, somewhere like that. That's if Christian Hammer just quits because he did. He did sort of quit against uh, Huey Fury, and um, which was surprising because Huey Fury is not a big puncher. So, if Huey Fury's punches can get Christian Hammer to quit, then I would say Joe Joyce has uh, got a good chance. Is uh, is Joyce a legitimate threat at the upper echelon? Do you consider him right now a legitimate threat to an Usyk, a Joshua, a Fury, or up at the top of the division? Do you? More of, a more of a threat to Anthony Joshua than he would be to Usyk, just because I think uh, uh, his, his Achilles heel, the juggernaut Joe Joyce, is that he's quite slow. His, uh, his power is that he just keeps going and going and going, and he can take a lot. He's shown his toughness. So, And I, I'd like to think that as he fights, he's getting better, and he's in the gym, and he's working on techniques. I mean, uh, a heavyweight who's 2-0 is not as good as a heavyweight who's undefeated at 25-0. They do improve their skills. I think Joe Joyce might surprise everybody. He did against Daniel Dubois. People thought he was the uh, walkthrough. He turned it around. He's done everything he's been asked to do. He's going to be facing Christian Hammer. I guess if he devastates Hammer aggressively inside of two or three rounds, that'll make a statement. We will find out if that is the case. We have got to get out of here shortly. We have had a blast. Once again, on TopHeavyweights.com, the podcast. Sean, plug away for the sites, for all that you are doing. Because if it's happening in the heavyweight division, you've got great breakdown through TopHeavyweights.com, sir. Yeah, TopHeavyweights.com. It's great for checking out if you want to see what's going on in the heavyweight division. Big fight weekend. Checking it out for the boxing world, finding out what's going on. It's a nice one, too. We like to work together, work together in the corner, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's always things happening. But, but you've got rankings, yeah. rankings. You've got your rankings. You've got the schedule. It's all there. Yeah, the schedule is based on the fights that are reasonably determined to be somewhat important. In other words, obviously, there are heavyweights uh, fights going on every weekend all over the world. But some of them are less relevant than others. So what we try to do is to, to be honest and take the ones that do have some world rankings on the line or some top 
hundred to top fifty um, um, significance in the world of heavyweight because there's what twenty eight hundred in, active mm. in the world. Um, and yeah, we try to make it fun. We try to present it as a, as a concise, cohesive unit, so you can actually look at it and get it. And it's got the old time heavyweights, and it's got the links to the past, and it's got the videos. It's a lot of fun. Um, Sometimes you click on it, you find something that's interesting. And also, if you have a heavyweight that you're interested in, the nice thing about it is you can follow your heavyweight. If he's going to the top or close to the top, you can follow his progress. And that's kind of neat. So We love all of that. And I learned something on the podcast. Who knew the Women's League of San Francisco and of California got the Jack Johnson heavyweight title fight in 1910, booted out of the state? I didn't know that. I learned it from Sean and TopHeavyweights.com. That's tremendous. Yeah, and like I said, the exact name of the women's league, I'm not sure of, but you can check it out. No, the governor was pressured by the uh, the women's league. He was pressured, and they said, we don't want this in California, certainly not in San Francisco. So they wanted Uh, it out. Tremendous. And they Uh, got it, and they got it out. So that's it. Love the backstory. Love the nostalgia. All great stuff. Sean, have a great uh, rest of the weekend. Weekend. The next time we'll talk to you, it will be July, post-July 4th here in the United States. Sean, a Canadian uh, guy, not as big a deal for July 4th on that. In the meantime, this was tremendous. Thank you again. We'll we'll see what's happening and whatever's going on in the heavyweight division. They need to find it on topheavyweights.com. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And we thank you for being with us as part of the Big Fight Weekend podcast feed. It's topheavyweights.com, the podcast. For Sean, I am merely TJ. Follow or subscribe on the Big Fight Weekend podcast feed, and you'll get this one when it's out. We're good for now talking heavyweights with topheavyweights.com.